Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host, Ricardo, and I'm here today to talk to James Del Borgo about his new book, Collecting the World, The Life and Curiosity of Hans Sloan, published by Penguin in 2017. The book tells the fascinatingly complex and controversial story of Hans Sloan, the man whose collection and last will laid the foundation for the British Museum, the first national free public museum. For Del Borgo, Sloan was for far too long an overlooked figure who knitted together the interests of a rising empire through methods of botany, natural history, and medicine. Overshadowed in part by his counterpart Isaac Newton, Sloan's life synchronizes with the changes of 17th century England to 18th century Britain. His life and the time are deeply interwoven with slavery and a new world of commerce. It was thanks to this interconnected world and the many intermediaries that Sloan managed to accumulate so many weird and wonderful objects from different places. He collected, catalogued and exhibited them according to his own belief system, which centered around binaries of enlightenment versus superstition and sober empiricism versus magic. More than anything, Dilberger's book reveals the complex lives and stories around Hans Sloan's collection and the many different peoples, places, and stories that are attached to the silent objects, even today. It raises important historical questions about ownership and authorship of public museums, collections, and curatorial practices, and makes them relevant for us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host, Ricarda, and I'm here today to talk to James Dalbogo about his new book, Collecting the World, The Life and Curiosity of Hans Sloan. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much, Ricarda. So before we start talking about your excellent book, would you please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, um, my name is James Dalbogo, and I was uh, born in the UK and started my education in the UK and uh, later continued my studies in the US. I've trained in history, colonial history, and the history of science, in particular in the early modern period, uh, principally the 17th and, and the 18th centuries. And um, I, my early training is in the history of the Atlantic world and colonization in the British colonies of the Atlantic world. Uh, and um, in fact, I uh, then went on to study um, in addition, uh, collecting and museum studies. Uh, I teach currently at Rutgers University, which is the state university uh, of uh, New Jersey, but I'm often in London and the UK. Uh, and working on the Sloan book, of course, for many years, um, had me working uh, for a long time at the British Library, the British Museum, and the Natural History Museum. So um, in some ways, I geographically follow uh, the subjects that I study, which means I'm often crossing the Atlantic. Excellent. Thank you. And so you mentioned a little bit about the book already, but could you tell us how you came to write the his, the life and curiosity of Hans Sloan collecting the world? Absolutely. Um, 
it's really very simple, which is that when I was teaching um, a few years ago uh, at McGill University in Montreal in Canada, I was teaching uh, some material on natural history. And I didn't know anything about or anything much about Hans Sloan at the time. Uh, but we read some work by a scholar of art history called Diane Kriz, who taught at Brown University. And uh, Diane Kriz wrote an article about Hans Sloan uh, and his natural history of Jamaica and the visual um, uh, images of plants and other things that he included in that volume. Now, the thing that really interested me was I never knew that the future founder of the British Museum had been in the West Indies, that he had spent over a year in Jamaica. And for me, this was fascinating and provocative. And I really thought, well, uh, this is very interesting because um, what then is the connection between Sloan's career and the origins of the British Museum, his, his great legacy, and slavery and the British Empire, as it, as it then was, and the lives and the knowledge of enslaved African men and women. So this was a tremendous um, uh, intellectual uh, provocation, if you like, a, a connection that I hadn't uh, known about. And then I, I really assumed that most people, certainly in the UK, would know a lot about Hans Sloan, uh, that his biography uh, must be um, boringly well known. I mean, the founder of the British Museum. It was really impossible for me to imagine in the beginning uh, how little most people in the general public really knew about Sloan. And I came to realize that over time. And then I thought, well, it would be worth taking the time to tell uh, this story uh, that is about the history of collecting and the history of colonialism and produces um, uh, uh, one of the first great national public museums anywhere in the world. And I specifically uh, thought this would be a topic of interest, not just to scholars, uh, but also the general public. So I determined that I would write the book um, uh, with Penguin, which I'm very glad I was able to do, as a work, as a very much an interpretation, but also a narrative of this person's life and of his collections, uh, so that the general public could know this story, because I thought it was very important that, that they do that, since the British Museum uh, is very much a living legacy, and we should understand uh, where it came from, uh, and who produced it, and exactly how. So we're going to jump right into the uh, book. And you divided the book actually into two parts. And the first uh, part called Empire of Curiosities kind of sets the stage of Sloan's colonial origins and travels, as well as his early career as a physician and his early early collecting practices and the kind of origins of all of that. Um, so in chapter one, you vividly describe the complex world of the restoration in which Sloan is born and raised. And so I was therefore wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the period and has Hans Sloan as a quote-unquote Protestant colonialist in Catholic Ireland. Yes, indeed. Well, it's, it's, it bears repeating that the founder of the British Museum was born in Ireland was born in the north of Ireland, born in Ulster in 1660, the year of the Restoration. Um, so first general point to make is, is on the chronology. Sloan's life really uh, is remarkable in how it synchronizes with the rise of the British Empire uh, between roughly the middle of the 17th and the middle of the 18th century. 
what we have is um, a, a, a life lived at a very particular point in time. Restoration, 1660. He then goes to, uh, just, just to jump ahead for a moment, uh, goes to uh, Jamaica in 1687, comes back in 1689, the year of the Glorious Revolution um, that puts William III on the throne. Uh, looking forward, uh, he uh, publishes his Natural History of Jamaica in 1707, the year of the Act of Union between England and Scotland. And he dies in 1753. Uh, and out of his legacy comes the creation of the British Museum, which opens in 1759. 1759 is the year of uh, the so-called Annus Mirabilis, in which the British military forces in South Asia and North America turned the tide against the French, marking the uh, rise of Britain into a global uh, imperial power in a way that it had not been uh, before. Uh, and so what we have is uh, chronologically a life uh, that lines up uh, remarkably well with the making of British society, the making of British wealth, the making of London, the rise of colonial uh, uh, finance and uh, uh, wealth from sugar colonies and many other kinds of trading. Uh, and so that, that is a very crucial element to understand where these collections and Sloan's ability to make them came from. Uh, the British Isles had been a very divided um, uh, set of peoples up until uh, the 18th uh, century, uh, not least uh, the Jacobite rebellions, not least the um, uh, fights between um, Protestants and Catholics uh, in the Glorious uh, Revolution. Uh, so Sloan is um, able to do what he does because the nature of English and British society is, is transformed uh, over the arc of his life. He's extremely long-lived. So that's the chronological side. Of course, the geographical side is he is born in Ulster as an Ulster uh, Protestant. He is the son of servants to aristocrats. These aristocrats come from Ayrshire and Scotland, and so do his own parents, who were uh, servants uh, helping uh, these um, uh, noblemen uh, run their estates. And so Sloane grows up uh, in, a, in a very particular place uh, with a very particular history, that is Protestant Ulster, um, as it is being um, incorporated into uh, what will then become British uh, uh, life in general in the, in the 18th century. So he's, he's something of an outsider. Um, he is the third uh, son, uh, and that means by the laws of primogeniture that he does not inherit the property that his own father acquires. That goes to the firstborn. And so when Sloane is about 19 years of age in the year 1679, he's ambitious and he needs to make his own way in the world. So he moves to London and he trains as a doctor and he then embarks on a very lucrative career um, uh, as a physician. But he, he is an interesting uh, character because he does he has he has both privilege and outsider status. He is born into the Protestant elite in Ulster, and of course they are uh, um, uh, seizing as much Catholic uh, land and property as they can throughout this period. But this is not something he personally inherits, and so he has to make his way, and that's what he does in London. 
in in the following two chapters, in chapter two and three, you describe Sloane's journey as a physician to the Duke of Albemarle, to the island of Jamaica, England's soon-to-be most important colony. You describe in really vivid and discomforting detail how much disdain Sloane had for the Afro-American slaves and how Sloane's accounts of the... of the former tie into the English more generally, coming to imagine themselves as, quote, Taino allies outraged by Spanish atrocities, and therefore thus rationalizing their own colonial efforts as, again, quote, moral counterweight to Iberian barbarity. Now, these are all quotes from page 67. And so I was wondering if you could tell us um, more about how slavery provided the essential foundation of Sloan's career and how the 15 months he spent at the island of Jamaica lay the foundation not just for his collection practices, but also for his scientific credibility as the author of the two-volume encyclopedia, Natural History of Jamaica. Yes, well, cha- as you say, chapters two and three are essentially set in Jamaica, uh, when Sloan is, uh, let's see, at that point, he's about 27 years of age, 1687 to 1689, he becomes physician to the new uh, governor of Jamaica, uh, the Duke of Albemarle, um, a notorious uh, drunken uh, uh, ne'er-do-well, uh, and who does not last very long uh, in Jamaica. Sloan tries to keep him alive, but it's simply not possible because uh, his uh, master will not give up carousing and not listen to his physicians. So Jamaica is absolutely foundational to Sloan's uh, career, to both his wealth and to his uh, scientific uh, acclaim, his acclamation as a man of letters, a learned uh, 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 natural historian, and as a physician. Uh, So this is a a relatively short period, but an absolutely formative one. Um, To zoom out for a second, of course, the background for this is that the English are trying to catch up on other European imperial uh, uh, powers who have been already very successful uh, and brought in a huge amount of money in different ways from colonizing different parts of the Americas. Of course, the Portuguese and the Spanish originally through uh, uh, various means, through in particular uh, using uh, enslaving indigenous people and enslaving Africans to work in mines, to bring silver and gold as bullion uh, back to uh, Europe and then uh, actually shipping it over to to, uh, Asia. Then the Dutch and the French, the Dutch break into the slave trade that the Portuguese had dominated. The French also uh, start to colonize. So the English are late uh, and the English are worried by Catholic power. And the references you make to some of Sloan's descriptions in Jamaica resonate precisely in this way, that he's extremely self-conscious in part because, of course, Jamaica had been under Spanish control until 1655. And so when Sloan is actually describing Jamaica, he's often doing so tacitly in a way that will remind readers of his account of his natural history of Jamaica, uh, not only that the English are the current rulers, but they are better rulers, that they somehow have a moral legitimacy, this of course despite African slavery, they somehow have a moral legitimacy which the, which the Spanish lacked. So Sloan is often referring back to uh, what is known as the black legend, the idea that the Spanish had been the most cruel and barbarous and unchristian of colonizers, making reference to the fact that the 
indigenous Taino population of Jamaica is thought in large part not merely to have died from disease, but to have committed uh, mass suicide in order to avoid the depredations uh, of the Spaniards. And in fact, Sloan describes in his book uh, a remarkable and disturbing scene of finding human remains in pots in a cave in Jamaica that he takes to be the remains of the indigenous Taino who took their own lives to avoid the brutality of life under the Spanish. Oh, uh, what a shame that they had not known kinder masters, the English. Now, of course, this was a fiction. Of course, this was a way in which the English, uh, perhaps in their own minds, perhaps in the minds of uh, the world at large, tried to legitimate themselves as new colonial masters. Uh, Sloan's time in Jamaica is completely immersed in African slavery, uh, and the brutality of this regime is something that he himself describes in a lengthy and graphic passage on the torture and execution of rebel slaves, which he concludes by justifying as necessary uh, for the upkeep of slavery and the profitability of the system, um, as well as saying that the uh, the any. Any brutality uh, the English have shown is nothing compared to the slaves themselves or indeed other Europeans. So two essential facts about uh, Sloan's uh, uh, relationship to the institution of slavery. He's a plantation doctor when he's in Jamaica. That is, he is working for the plantocracy. He is trying to heal both whites and slaves so that slaves can return to work. Uh, he tends to trust very much what white uh, colonists, English colonists, tell him about their endless uh, complaints, either real or hypochondriac. And yet when he reviews what he is told by uh, enslaved African men and women about their physical or even psychological distresses, he dismisses this as, as mere shirking and trying to avoid work. So he's, you could say that the racism that was ingrained in slavery uh, was as ingrained and as institutional in his own uh, disposition as a physician. He did not treat uh, the um, uh, complaints of black and white equally in, in Jamaica, far from it. So um, what's very, very important about Jamaica is, first of all, that when Sloan comes back, he marries an heiress to Jamaica sugar and cacao plantations, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Langley. Rose. He meets Elizabeth Rose when he's in Jamaica uh, through her husband, Dr. Fulk Rose, a fellow doctor. After Sloan comes back from the island uh, by the 1690s, Fulk Rose has died. And Sloan then in 1695 marries Elizabeth Langley Rose. And by the terms of their will, he gains access to one third of the profits from her plantations. That means he is a direct beneficiary of the institution of slavery. And we see from his surviving account books money into his accounts in terms of hogsheads of sugar transported from those plantation estates. And in fact, on some of those same pages, you see money paid out for curiosities. Uh, this is just one illustration of the fact that uh, money from the institution of slavery fed Sloan's collecting. It is certainly not the only source of income that he had. Uh, he probably uh, derived more income from his medical practice, but it was often remarked that Sloan uh, could not have collected in the same way without the fortune made through his wife, Lady Sloan, about whom we unfortunately uh, know very little, 
in the documentary record, but she was pivotal um, uh, to his career uh, in, in this respect. Second point um, to make is that Sloan, as a result of his time in Jamaica, produces a lavishly illustrated natural history of Jamaica. And we know, and we know because he says so, uh, we know that he deliberately sought out uh, knowledge about plants and animals um, and herbal remedies from enslaved Africans. And if you go to this day to the Natural History Museum in South Kensington, if you go to the Sloan Herbarium, uh, which is located in the Darwin Center, you will see volumes of pressed plants that Sloan brought back from Jamaica to London in 1689. They're still there, uh, miraculously, and as a testament to their collection and their curation, none of them have been lost. Many of those uh, plants, uh, some of which are, are African in origin, like okra plants or uh, uh, guinea corn, otherwise known as sorghum, these specimens are still glued to the page, and they would have come from African cultivators in Jamaica because Sloan visited the provision grounds where slaves even, even uh, grew their own food. Uh, so there is a direct material scientific legacy um, that is physically present in the Natural History Museum that comes from Afro-Jamaica. And the publication of the Natural History of Jamaica in 1707 and 1725 featured enormous, life-size, incredibly meticulous drawings of these plants of interest to botanists uh, around uh, Europe at the time. That volume really established Sloan's uh, credentials as a mighty naturalist who had actually um, somewhat unusually done the traveling himself, been out and collected these specimens with the help of, of slaves and others, and produced really an encyclopedic work on the colony that, as you rightly say, was becoming uh, the most financially important in, in all of Britain's empire. So Jamaica is a foundation, slavery is a foundation, both uh, scientifically uh, and also financially for Sloan. Excellent. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk a bit more how um, these collections are still um, are kind of exhibited today and whether um, Hans Sloan's story, um, the way you tell it, is um, is part of, of the exhibit. Um, because in the second uh, um, part of the book, entitled Assembling the World, uh, you trace Sloan's rise in London after you, you know, you already said his marriage to the wealthy widow Elizabeth Rose, um, which really positioned him among London's elite. And then, um, uh, yeah, I think the following chapters are really incredibly revealing in terms of the interconnectivity of a small elite of landed aristocrats and wealthy merchants and traders who really consolidated power amongst them and made landmark decisions such as the incredibly complex enterprise of establishing a um, quote-unquote public museum. And as I said, we'll be talking about more about this along the way. Yes, well, that's, that's, um, that's very much the case. I mean, when Sloan comes back to London, he becomes precisely one of the figures you mentioned, this relatively small number of people who are professional people and they have connections, uh, of course, to, to, to Parliament. They're really uh, connected to the world of trade. The world of commerce is expanding and bringing a new kind of wealth, not gold or, or silver, uh, into British coffers. But uh, people who trade in slaves, people who trade in sugar, 
uh, chocolate, uh, various uh, uh, commodities. This is the world of expansion that uh, distinguishes 18th century Britain from 17th century England. And Sloan is right at the heart of it. Um, he is connected to so many different people. This is really his genius in a way. Sure, he comes home, he becomes a physician, and this is uh, central to, to his wealth and his position. He becomes one of the wealthiest London society physicians in the first half of the 18th century. And he uh, has many aristocratic clients. Uh, he has uh, clients in the royal family. Uh, he has uh, clients connected to people like Sir Robert Walpole, uh, the first uh, person to be called prime minister. Uh, so he is extraordinarily well uh, connected and uh, becomes extremely wealthy as a result of that. But more than that, I think he collects together through himself a set of institutions and institutional friendships um, that were uh, really foundational to him then being able to go on and create uh, uh, what becomes the British Museum, um, because he had been connected to so many people um, when they had the idea of making his collections into an institution, they had a kind of trust and connection to Sloan. And I think without that, it, there's a question about whether his legacy would have, would have um, been um, executed in, in the way that he hoped. So, you know, the remarkable thing is how many institutions he connected. He became the secretary and then ultimately the president of the Royal Society. At the same time, he was president of the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, and of course, these are elite clubs of leading uh, men, professional men, gentlemen, but they were also completely tied to the world of commerce, the Royal Society, was a place where Sloan had introduced many more correspondents traveling the world. Maybe they could furnish new, interesting uh, drugs or observations on foreign peoples. Uh, of course, as Royal College of Physicians president, he was particularly interested to uh, control pharmacopoeia in London. Uh, he was very well placed to have the authority to judge whether new drugs from uh, other continents were uh, could be lucrative and useful and, and dramatically effective, or on the other hand, might be poisonous, dangerous, and so on. Uh, he was also extremely closely linked with Chelsea Physic Garden, uh, which is still there in Chelsea, in many ways the forerunner of Kew Gardens as an imperial nursery uh, for plants from many different parts of the world. And this was where Sloan had trained uh, in part uh, after getting to London in 1679. And really, he never forgot his debt to the herbal and botanical training that was at the heart of his medicine and at the heart of his, of his collecting, um, that went back to Chelsea Physic Garden. So he's a great patron of the garden. Um, he makes sure that travelers who are his personal um, uh, correspondents will send back seeds for this, um, if you like, experimental garden to to. For example, they are installing greenhouses in the beginning of the of the uh, early eighteenth uh, 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 century, or furnaces uh, to do things like grow cacao. Is it possible to grow uh, cacao in the early part of the eighteenth century? And in fact, it is possible, although they can't make um, the English cacao trees. Maybe that doesn't sound terribly appetizing. Uh, bear fruit. They can't actually produce. Uh, cacao nuts. So there's no uh, homegrown English um, chocolate uh, at the time. But that tells you 
uh, I think wonderfully, uh, speaks of the world in which this man was moving and that he was as much, if not more than anybody else, animating a world of botanical knowledge, of long-distance bioprospecting, of the attempt to domesticate and to make money uh, out of the domestication of plant stuffs from, uh, from abroad. So uh, Sloan is this, for far too long, um, overlooked figure who is knitting together the interests of an empire, a rising empire, through the methods of botany, natural history, and medicine. It's worth pointing out, incidentally, that many of our narratives uh, within the history of science for what was going on in British science uh, in this part of the 18th century um, were for a very long time had everything to do with Isaac Newton, experimental science, physical science, Newtonianism. And this has always been, or, or for, for a long time, was considered really the story. And it's so interesting that it's a story that cleaves the history of science into two without even telling you. Because, uh, of course, Sloan was not uh, a physical a practitioner of physical science. He did not conduct uh, uh, laboratory experiments, but in a way, um, there were many more Sloans than Newtons, um, which may be a back-added way of, of praising Newtonian genius, which was always much talked about in the 18th century. Um, but it's to say that at a geographical level and a demographic level, there were many more people involved in what you could call the big science of the 18th century, and that was botany and that was natural history, and that was collecting, and that was prospecting for information and substances that could turn out to have an extraordinary value. And if you then shift to that world, then the picture of science in the 18th century looks, in a sense, more accurate. Um, it, was, it was global. It was certainly imperial. It didn't simply involve a small uh, a cast of elite learned characters. It involved women. It involved enslaved people. It involved indigenous people from many different societies. I mean, these were really the people that Sloan wanted to gain access to in terms of their knowledge about plants and medicines. And how could you do that in India and China and Vietnam uh, and Siam uh, and the Caribbean and Canada? What Sloan then therefore developed was this extraordinary network of travelers. To be sure, most of these were, were English. They were journeymen in the East India Company or the South Sea Company or the Hudson's Bay Company, or they were planters in places like Antigua or Virginia or Carolina. Um, but the crucial thing that he's doing um, and the way he is making these vast collections of objects and specimens of man-made things and natural things is through these travelers, and it is these travelers in places like India uh, or uh, the American South who are interacting with indigenous populations, enslaved, uh, displaced populations, trying to um, learn from them what they know about plants and objects that maybe nobody has seen before in 18th century Europe that could be of extraordinary value. So I think that is, is really the story that, that develops, that's really the origins of these collections and therefore really are the origins of, of the British Museum as, as a public museum. It was really this empire of connections that wasn't just European. It was all of these different travelers 
really doing a version of what Sloan himself had, after all, done in Jamaica. He had gone into those provision plantations uh, because he wanted to find what it was that enslaved Africans would know about plants and animals and medicines that uh, Europeans did not. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was a perfect summary of um, how to become Hans Sloan in a way and much more than that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and much more than that as well. And this is really why I think your book is so important, you know, because it kind of rectifies, as you said, um, our idea of 18th century uh, science and um, and empire, if you will. And so in chapter four, um, you we're going to go back to Sloan. Um, you further talk about of what you call Sloan's, quote, enthusiastic curiosity mongering. Um, that's on page 162. I thought that was quite a curious way um, of describing uh, his passion for collecting. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and maybe exemplify that um, with, for example, his four-part illustrated essay, Uh, that describes a China cabinet from um, 1698 to 99, which I think he published in the Philosophical Transactions, the, um, the publication that was done by the Royal Society and um, uh, the first journal of, of, of science, as I understand it. Uh, well, certainly the first um, sci regular scientific publication in the, in the British Isles. Um, but yes, uh, Sloan was... Uh, became the editor of the, the Royal Society's Philosophical Transactions in 1693. And um, in many ways, uh, it had not been particularly um, active. And he really made it much more active. And um, the contrast here um, um, that, that one can usefully mention is with something we've already talked about in part, that the world of Newtonianism and, and experimental science. So uh, Sloan was a very active editor. He was in touch with many different traveling correspondents, and he was interested in, in things that were, that were curious, things that were perhaps um, odd things, perhaps things whose value or meaning weren't yet established. And he undertook it uh, to... Um, if you like, suspend judgment. This is really the kind of natural history as a speculative um, endeavor that he's practicing. Let us um, uh, have a, a description of a rare plant or a rare bird. And maybe it's something we know about, maybe it's not. Uh, let's have a, 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 um, a letter published that describes some odd inscriptions at a cave uh, somewhere in Goa that maybe we don't understand, but this could be interesting. Maybe others will, will take up um, further inquiry uh, at some later date. So enthusiastic curiosity mongering. So enthusiastic, en enthusiastic and, and speculative, um, extremely latitudinarian, if you like, willing to let the, the, um, uh, the reach uh, exceed the grasp, um, phenomena that we don't completely understand, phenomena that are curious, that might merit further investigation. They might tell us more about foreign peoples. They might tell us more about what they produce and how to produce it in terms of manufacturing. Um, but, and, and mongering, well, 
not everybody was convinced. Um, and we'll come back to that in a second. But the article that you refer to is a multi-part article on, as you say, the, the a China cabinet. Um, what this was, and it still exists in the, in the British Museum, um, and one can look these things up on the British Museum's uh, website and uh, find pictures of them and, and some further details of them. This was a set of instruments um, that belonged to a surgeon. It was picked up by a man called Edward Bulkley, uh, traveling actually around South Asia, and he'd gotten hold of what he identified as a set of Chinese implements for shaving, uh, some razors, some combs, and in particular, two or three implements that caught the attention because they seemed amusing or odd or it wasn't clear what they were. These were described either as ear ticklers or ear pickers. And in the article that uh, Sloan had published about these uh, is included in the engraving of of the contents of this surgical case, a picture of a man uh, uh, depicted as a a man from China um, who is in some smiling way using one of these implements to relieve himself of a certain irritating sensation in his ear by using one of these particular uh, tools. The more significant or as significant is that these ear ticklers or ear pickers were picked up on by a satirical writer who absolutely slaughtered Sloan in a satirical attack called the Transactioneer, a reference to Sloan, the peddler of transactions, right? So the monger um, is significant in that Sloan is a peddler of transactions. He's just a kind of lowly tradesman who's not really very intelligent or very learned. He's certainly no Isaac Newton. He's no genius writing the Principia Mathematica and framing laws of motion. No, these are all odds and ends and unexplained things. And the, the transactioneer is, in a ver- is a very, uh, for the period, typically amusing Swiftian satire in which uh, uh, Sloan is pilloried as a kind of mindless follower of fashion, that anything that comes from Asia must be of interest. And it's written by a man called William King, who the the most interesting thing about the satire is that it's very much a Little Englander kind of satire. It's really the idea that these new men interested in commerce, this new elite interested in the wider world and all these exotic things, well, it's just a load of rubbish, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, wh- wh- why do we need to go beyond our shores um, in order to get uh, things of, of value? What's what's wrong with English things or British things? So it's satirical, it's jokey, it's a takedown, but it's also a kind of um, insular philosophy that, that anything coming from abroad with strange-sounding names is vaguely ridiculous um, and ultimately a bit pointless. The final thing to say about all of this is that um, although that was just a satirical attack by a Grub Street hack, if you like, uh, a a satirist, there was, um, when Sloan became president of the Royal Society in 1727, there is a continuity of this view of him as a kind of lowly um, uh, dunderhead uh, that extends from this kind of satirical attack in, in 1700 to some of the grousing about, New- about Sloan succeeding Isaac Newton 
as president of the Royal Society in 1727. There were those for whom this was to bring the Royal Society into a kind of intellectual disrepute because of Sloane's intellect and his natural history being bound up not with the lofty verities of mathematics or, or causal natural philosophy, but with the grubby commercial exotica um, that looked like the sort of things that were pouring into the emporiums of London at the time. Not only this, but there's a class attack on, on Sloane for bringing uh, apothecaries into the fellowship of the Royal Society. Now, some of these apothecaries were, were very learned and extremely well-connected to people traveling around the world, and therefore able to get all kinds of rare specimens. The best example here is James Petiver, who was um, uh, an apothecary in Aldersgate in East London, and Sloane has Petiver uh, made into a fellow of the Royal Society, which is quite an extraordinary thing to elevate, uh, if you like, a, a, you know, somebody who was not wealthy, not a gentleman, let alone an aristocrat, into uh, the company of fellows from that class. So what I think is particularly interesting is the um, alignment of, of, of stars, if you like, between ideas about class, ideas about science, and ideas about geography. All these things were linked in the way in which people did attack Sloane's enthusiastic uh, curiosity mongering. It was to critics intellectually lowly and a bit shameful compared to the heights of Newtonian genius. It was introducing lower class tradesmen who, you know, sold medicines for a, for a living um, in, in the streets of, uh, streets of London. And it was involving um, the Royal Society and therefore British learning about the natural world much more frankly in the commercial um, uh, dynamics of global trade uh, with all kinds of implications, um, uh, one of which was that at the time uh, there was great concern about the amount of gold and silver that the British, among other Europeans, are paying out to East Asian and South Asian markets for spices, silks, fashion for chinoiserie, and, and this kind of thing. So there was almost a kind of moral concern about global trade impurifying uh, uh, and, and threatening, if you like, uh, not only um, uh, British intellectual integrity, but financial integrity in terms of the flows of, of global wealth in, in this period, despite the, the rise of the empire. So Sloan is in, the, is in the center of the Royal Society polemic about these issues of class, style of science, uh, uh, geography, um, and um, but the point is that they're really much larger issues, and through the kind of natural history that he practiced, we see a, a very strong reaction against them. Uh, not everybody thought this was speculative, potentially useful, charming. Some people thought it was uh, base, uh, ridiculous, and really beneath contempt. I'm going to follow up on this actually, um, because you who knows Hans Sloane so very well, what what do you think? Did he did he himself actually believe that all the curiosities that he's collecting will continue to be curious for future gen generations? Because he wasn't all too bothered by all the criticism that you just uh, mentioned, and he he simply continued to collect as much as he could. 
um, is at least kind of the picture I get from reading the book. So do you think he, he kind of believed in his collecting practices and in the value of these objects? Well, uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I think somehow, <laughs> I think his wealth... His wealth insulated him from a lot of these um, attacks uh, and his longevity. Uh, he was, you know, uh, I think one reason people didn't work on him for many years is because on the page, he's not particularly charismatic. Uh, there are many people who say he's excellent company. And, you know, I wish I was ill so the doctor could come round and I could spend an hour with Sloan and this sort of thing. Um, so, so I think he was very urbane. He was perhaps rather understated in some ways. He was not an interesting lunatic, um, if you will, like, like Newton. Newton was a millenarian. He was arguably extremely paranoid. Um, he was a, a, a genius. Um, but we now know was um, uh, a sort of tormented um, a person who was highly vindictive um, in philosophical disputes with, with rivals. Uh, Sloan is not that way at all. Uh, he is studiedly diplomatic, and so therefore he's a different kind of uh, social character who operates in a different manner uh, from the classic uh, 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 intellectual uh, rival um, uh, sort of way of, of looking at such um, figures. Now, he is uh, he does mention to one of his friends, I think it's probably John Ray, that he is very much stung by... Uh, the attack that William King makes on him. So there is a record of him saying he did not like this at all, and it bothered him. And in fact, in his Natural History of Jamaica, <laughs> with, with a mix of, of um, uh, perhaps defensiveness and also imperiousness, he says, you know, there will always be malicious, contemptible persons who, who um, you know, peevishly scorn any attempt to innovate intellectually and talk about things that we don't really understand um, that come from faraway places whose names and languages we don't understand and, and they are to be ignored. And he could ignore them uh, with the, the money, with the institutional connections he had, with the patronage at, at his disposal. So I think you're right that he was able to continue, um, even though he might have been quite perturbed about it, as to the question of whether he thought all his curiosities would ultimately prove valuable, I don't think he's, I, I think in a sense the answer would be yes, but he's not going to worry about doing that work himself. Um, his time is enormously consumed, after all, by running his medical practice, running the Royal Society, running the Royal College of Physicians, physician to the royal family, um, correspondence alone, maintaining correspondence with uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people over the course of his life, documenting his collections, uh, writing catalogues, um, often in his own hand, not always, after a while he becomes too old and too tired and he does have many assistants, but um, uh, he is not in a position to work on the collections. The collections are his work in their own in their own right. Here's one other important thing to say about your question. Uh, I think we have to see Sloane's uh, criterion uh, for valuing curiosities as twofold, and there's a very important relation between the two things. One is that he definitely sees himself as a sober, empirical uh, physician and a materialist. 
not in a religious sense. He's a rather standard kind of Christian, very moderate, believes in freedom of conscience. Um, but he is uh, somebody who um, thinks that when you collect a specimen of cacao from Jamaica and you bring it back to London and you put it in your natural history of Jamaica, uh, what's most interesting about it is uh, the ability to produce chocolate as a medicinal drink, um, uh, ultimately, uh, not and, and um, its commodity value. This is commercial natural history. It's utilitarian. It's medical. Uh, he does have some ethnographic interest, to be sure. He's very interested in the fact that cacao nuts, as he puts it, pass for money in various different indigenous societies. Now, this is a clue to the second aspect of what could be valuable about a given object when that value is not material. So cacao sometimes passes for money, that's interesting, but there, beyond that, there are many instances of Sloan collecting objects associated with various forms of magic, or we could say um, astrology, alchemy, uh, forms of knowledge that were immensely learned and uh, practiced and regarded with great seriousness by learned naturalists and philosophers in Europe, certainly well into the 17th century, but are being increasingly challenged by the 17th and 18th century. And Sloan is one of those people, I think particularly through his exposure to uh, various forms of chemistry as part of his um, uh, training as a physician and as a botanist, working on uh, ideas of uh, using uh, the chemical uh, manipulations of, of, of plants and herbal medicines and so on. Sloan regards anything to do with magic um, not only as wrong, uh, but, uh, but he says as insane. It's really a form of error that approximates uh, insanity. And so he's usually very diplomatic, but one of the few times where he is outspoken is recommending particularly strong purges, bloodletting, He's a Galenical healer, after all, for those who seriously believe in the power of astrology or the power of alchemy, uh, the, the ability to use magic to discover the location of buried treasure. Uh, this, for him, whether these uh, practitioners are English, whether they are Christians, whether they are Muslims, uh, whether they are Afro-Caribbean healers, for him, this is a form of insanity. And so those objects... Um, relating to magic, whether these are amulets, talismans, whether these are written charms or prayers. In the British Library, he has an enormous collection to this day of charms or prayers, verbal formulas for protection and healing against evil spirits and other forms of physical and spiritual danger. These things will not have a practical use for Sloan, but they precisely show what not to believe about the natural world. At the same time, the way he collects his plants and documents plants and animals and other things that can be materially useful, these are the two sides, if you like, of, of the coin. Between uh, the, the coin on one side, superstition, on the other side, enlightenment. On the one side, magic. On the other side, sober empiricism. There's only the thing itself. There are no magical powers in words or that inhere in any material object. So these are two different kinds of value. One, utterly commercial, uh, botanical, uh, and so on. The other, 
uh, cultural, what we would call more ethnographic. Uh, it's kind of reverse ethnography. He's not really trying to understand um, uh, how a given culture works as such in a particular part of the world. It's not modern anthropology. But to use many different objects from many different places to illustrate and to put in his collection, put in his museum, to illustrate and to exhibit the follies of these outdated doctrines and really to um, see his collection and the museum ultimately teaching, yes, useful lessons about uh, useful knowledge, practical knowledge of the natural world and how to exploit it as a, as a good commercial Protestant imperialist, but at the same time also to almost have a kind of therapeutic, a cultural therapeutics of the museum where we display many examples of the errors of many different peoples and civilizations, again, including the kinds of alchemists who had been very authoritative um, and, and well-respected and alchemists in, uh, in, in England, even into the 17th century. So um, it's a, it's, this is, in a sense, intellectually uh, where the, the collections center for Sloan in this double lesson about uh, practical commodifiable value, but also the value of seeing the errors of various cultures. Now, in chapter six, putting the world in order, you introduce one of my favorite stories, um, uh, which is about the West African Muslim uh, slave trader, actually from Senegal, Ayuba Suleiman Diallo, who was himself enslaved, uh, but later freed um, with the help of Sloan and, and, and others. Could you tell our listeners more about this um, anecdote and why you think it important in the context of the story you tell? Well, Diallo is um, perhaps the most remarkable story that we have of a relatively well-documented individual um, who pertains very much to, to, to the collections. And um, it's extraordinary because of the complexity of the encounter. Um, to sum it up, this is uh, uh, a man who is a Muslim, he's from West Africa, from Bundus, Senegal, who in the 1730s is sold into slavery, finds himself in Maryland, according to the story, writes a letter in Arabic, uh, really seeking his freedom. And the story that we have, um, improbable though it is, is that this letter finds itself, uh, finds its way to London and is translated and is read by um, a British military figure and uh, philanthropist and founder of Georgia, uh, General James Oglethorpe, who was a friend of Sloan's. And by one means or another, a group of philanthropically minded Londoners, among whom Sloan counts himself, um, arranges for Diallo to be brought to London, and he is. And when he is in London, one of the things he does is to stay with Sloan in his house in Bloomsbury, where he translates the Arabic on a number of Persian amulets, these charms, in fact, that I just mentioned, they're, they're an example of this. Uh, and uh, very few people, of course, at this time in early 18th century London have command of Arabic. So this is a remarkable opportunity for Sloan. Um, and the Quranic inscriptions on these um, uh, amulets uh, are uh, part of that sort of culture of, of prayer and, and, and uh, healing and so on. Uh, these amulets, by the way, are still in the British Museum. They're extraordinarily beautiful objects. Uh, one of the reasons uh, Sloan may have valued them as physical things, even if he did not uh, 
value them other than in the negative as, as illustrations of misguided belief. And if you like, I mean, don't forget, he's a doctor through it all. Here's how, uh, here's an example of erroneous medicine or, or folk belief um, that Sloan, of course, uh, just by his very professional uh, being is, is, is against. So, of course, it's a remarkable episode in the history of knowledge and learning and what we might say intellectual orientalism and antiquarianism and so on and so forth. Um, but what I'm looking to do throughout the book, and Diallo is such a good case of it, is absolutely to tell that intellectual history story, but also to realize that that exchange of knowledge takes place within a dynamic between different people. And of course, when Diallo is doing this work, he is still waiting to be freed. He has not yet been manumitted. And of course, I think the right way to, to, to see what is going on is as a set of negotiations, exchanges, relationships uh, that are intellectually productive for somebody like Sloan. But of course, this is all somehow to negotiate um, Diallo's uh, uh, possible uh, release. And in fact, he is finally set free and returned as uh, um, remarkably as an agent of the Royal African Company in West Africa, um, uh, uh, in theory, uh, to collaborate with the British against their French rivals. The French are in West Africa. Of course, West Africa is valuable not only for the slave trade, but for gum trading and gold mining and things like this. And so the story is is remarkable, not just given the um, combination of intellectual history and the personal history and the dynamics involved in an individual ne negotiating and navigating their way back from slavery to uh, freedom, uh, but of course, I think it's it's tells us something very important about Sloan himself, which is that it is very um, unwise to look for modern-day heroes and villains in an, any kind of obvious and crude way when looking at the people in this story. I mean, after all, Diallo goes back as a slave trader. Um, and, of course, you know, Sloan himself is uh, somebody whose legacy is a remarkable a public legacy. Um, but we know that the foundations are not only through the rise of the British Empire generally, but very specifically, of course, in, in Jamaica and through the institution of slavery. So the book is really written to keep these two stories together at the same time and to try to put them in relation rather than to somehow cast a judgment from today about whether this man is a hero or whether he is a villain. These terms don't fit our understanding uh, very well. And I think Diallo is a magnificent case where uh, uh, this issue also comes up because years ago, um, his portrait um, uh, uh, done by a man named William Hoare in the early uh, 1730s, which had been at the National Portrait Gallery was in, in London, was in the process of um, being uh, secured for the Qatar Museum's authority uh, in Qatar. And a debate uh, took place in the press about Diallo. And it's something that, that, that happens with Sloan a lot, which is the complicating factors are edited out of the story. Now, this is entirely reasonable or predictable, if you like, in terms of contemporary politics. Is this person a villain or a slave? How can we uh, make an argument for him one way or the other? Um, it's, of course, very bad history. 
and it strips away the complexity of a person like uh, Diallo. And indeed, um, I, I think with Sloan, uh, what was often the case was to say, especially in the UK, well, he's a you know magnificently important figure and is a museological hero and so on. Uh, yes, indeed, I think that is quite true. But I don't think you can say that um, without understanding the background in slavery and imperialism. I think the perception is often that, well, which are you saying? Then <laughs> is it the one or the other? And of course, that that cannot do any kind of uh, justice to the complexity of the history. I think if there is a, a lesson that the book tries to share, it is the impossibility of reducing such figures to that kind of, of choice. And um, uh, certainly putting these things in relation um, and understanding where the British Museum comes from uh, in its totality, uh, I think extremely important. And I, I think does play um, you know, I think you, you can get the, the complicated history right in a way that actually does serve uh, the civic um, uh, function of a museum in the present by precisely acknowledging the complexity of where our great public institutions uh, come from. I think that has enormous civic value, and I would like to see museums, including the British Museum, do more of that. Wow, definitely. I agree with you entirely. And um, I think you do all of the you. Yeah, you do all of this really well in your book. Um, and just to add on for our listeners, the yellow portrait was actually kept in England then because I went to see it at the National Portrait Gallery just before doing this interview. Um, and it's still there for anyone to see. Well, that's an interesting point. My my understanding is that it's on a very, very long loan, um, that it was acquired by the Qatar Museum's authority. Um, but what are we, uh, February 2018? Um, I don't know if that has changed, but I, I know that for years it remained in London on loan. I don't actually know um, if that remains the case. Perhaps the terms of the loan have been extended. Oh, wow. Excellent. Okay. So it's a kind of compromise, the two. <laughs> yes. It's a, and it's a very, of course, it's a very interesting reversal of the, the, the flows of, of objects and their directions from the, only, uh, from the early modern period, where, of course, if we're in Europe um, or, or even in, in the United States, we tend to see this, this period precisely in Sloanian terms. This is the period where things from the, the so-called East uh, went to the West. Um, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Chinese historians of China in the long 18th century would rightly see that differently. But it, it is a, a very interesting, um, at least on Diallo's particular story and the story of this, this portrait, um, which, which Sloan may have had a hand in commissioning and, and, and in a sense discussing the composition of it, though we, we don't know the details. Um, it's interesting that this, this portrait in the present day, given where the world economy is today, um, both with respect to, to uh, Middle Eastern nations and, and uh, the UK, it's, it's interesting the change of direction, at least in this particular portrait. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, so yeah, before we go on, I really want to emphasize for our listeners that um, the next two chapters are especially a must read for anybody interested in museology and the complex issues around it. And I think provenance, you know, is also one thing we've not really talked about 
uh, yet, but we might do um, in a bit. And then, um, so basically, everything, all the complex issues that are, that come uh, with museology, from collection management and cataloging, labeling, annotating, and curating, and so on and so forth, to broader questions as well around what a public museum actually means um, and who who holds ownership and authorship and who gets a voice in all of this. And um, so I was wondering if you could tell us in more detail about Sloan's attempt to a, quote, total information architecture, as you call it. This is all um, very low tech from our point of view. Um, The remarkable thing about Sloan that makes my book possible um, in, in, in some ways is the survival of catalogs um, about 50 or so originally, about 30 or so survived. These are thousands of pages of thousands of items, uh, laboriously handwritten. Um, they're not particularly orderly or taxonomic. Uh, they're orderly in the sense of they're, they're more or less accession uh, lists, one, two, three, um, you know, through, in one case, a seed collection through 12,000. Uh, Sloan wrote many of those himself. Um, and he did, at least in some of these catalogs, do some cross-referencing. But let's put it this way, uh, the, the, it was a dream of, of total information um, that couldn't be realized. Uh, I don't think it's entirely inappropriate to see this um, uh, or, or unuseful to see this in relation to digital technology today. There is a project in London based at the British Museum, also at the BL and, and the NHM, to uh, digitally reintegrate and and make searchable as an integrated set of catalogs across subject areas, the Sloan catalogs. Uh, so that's a very interesting um, update, if you like. And what it um, uh, tells us historically is that this is a very rare uh, thing, that we have an early 18th century collection that is this well uh, documented. These are um, catalogues on fossil, by, uh, broken down by simple uh, categories, fossils, birds, fish, um, uh, uh, plants, uh, vegetable substances, meaning seeds and resins, um, and antiquities. And then, interestingly, there are some catalogues that don't fit very well. There's one called uh, miscellanies or miscellaneous things. Uh, in fact, this was about 2,000 objects um, that were... Uh, what we would call largely ethnographic curiosities. Um, but uh, the, the point is that these um, uh, acts of inscription, of cataloging, of minute enumeration, uh, was, uh, this was really at the heart of Sloan's life's work. I mean, this, this documentation was essential. He took a lot of material from letters that other people wrote, and incorporated them into the catalog. So there are many different voices and sources of, for example, stories told about the healing properties of certain West African plants that the Duke of Shandos, associated with the Royal Africa Company, had had Sloan sent from Guinea. So a lot of these category uh, catalogs remain to be um, investigated by uh, historians in, in greater depth. Um, but they were also part of a labeling system whereby Sloan put a, a number basically to every single thing in all of his catalogs. And these were usually also spatial finding places. They were 
you know, a number meant a place on a shelf or in a certain room and so on. Uh, so you could have some findability um, uh, that way. But this, to address the other part of your question, is, of course, not the same as provenance as such. Um, Sloan uh, certainly did like noting and telling people that a particular object had an illustrious pedigree. This was, uh, for example, an eagle scalp that he had gotten from the leader of the Yamacraw delegation, Tomochichi, who was negotiating the settlement of Georgia and its boundary with the Yamacraw in London, 1733 to 1734. He doesn't actually say how it was acquired. It came from Tomochichi. He doesn't say how he got it. Similarly, in the Natural History of Jamaica, Sloan uh, remarkably uh, has written down and includes in that book uh, music played by slaves and has uh, drawings of instruments, musical instruments, banjos, played by enslaved Africans in Jamaica. Does he tell us how he got those instruments? No. And this is very often the case. And it's, it's the difference between a story that has an association with an illustrious or interesting exotic or high-status royal aristocratic person. That's one thing. How does Sloan actually acquire these things? Well, the answer is usually money. Um, but of course, he's buying things secondhand from other people, say in India or Asia, who, who've already taken them. So there's, there's mysteries. It's the, it's the interesting paradox. So much documentation, so voluble about so many aspects of these things and their uses, so quiet on the means of acquisition reason for that is that Sloan probably didn't care. There's certainly not a legal issue at the time, or indeed a moral one. Uh, we don't know um, most of the time. But the short and unsatisfying answer is that Sloan paid for many of these objects from uh, intermediaries, other travelers who'd already acquired them by some fashion. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on this, but maybe we'll do this at the very end. Kind of, um, I'm wondering about whether you think uh, museums today should reveal um, this kind of provenance that's not given, you know, the, the provenance that's not provided by Hans Sloan, but um, by kind of um, telling the story of, of Hans Sloan himself, for example. Well, let me just, let me just, yes, let me just follow up right, 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 um, right away, because um, there's something specifically worth saying, which is that um, I think museums have evolved a lot, some more than others, um, uh, but there is an enormous variety of approach these days. Nevertheless, it's historically uh, accurate to say that the European museum and uh, those museums in other parts of the world that came out of that tradition um, have always uh, had originally a kind of view from nowhere approach. The view that what the museum shows you is a place or a people or a landscape or an animal. And if you like, there's just something very classic about that that resonates with the history of science, the view of science as a view from nowhere. It doesn't matter who's doing the looking, the depicting, the collecting. Their aim is to objectively uh, present an external reality. Now, uh, that is, of course, an important idea um, that continues to, to resonate and inform uh, you know, many different areas of intellectual inquiry. Um, but one thing one can certainly say is that Uh, I do think museums can uh, dramatically enrich 
what they present to the public by telling stories um, about provenance, about acquisition. That is to say that our collections are, of course, relational, as many museum studies scholars have argued. Uh, they, they, I'm, one doesn't have to argue that they show us nothing about other people. Um, one doesn't have to argue that um, as a corollary of showing who it is is doing the knowing and the collecting. Rather, uh, there is a relationship to be made evident between people who did collecting, uh, people who assembled museum exhibits, uh, and the subject matter, whether human or non-human, um, uh, that they gathered information from, uh, very often without acknowledging it. Take the example of Diallo. I don't think if you go into the British Museum today, you learn anything about him. You might see amulets. I don't know if they've been on display lately. Uh, you might see those kinds of objects um, and they would classically be presented as here is evidence of a particular culture, of a particular way of doing medicine, and so on. Um, I think just on sheer intellectual interest, and not just for scholars, but for the general public, to see those things and to know the Diallo story, um, which of course is a curatorial challenge. Um, you know, museums aren't books, they are um, spaces that combine things. Um, objects, captions, and, and so on. So it's, it's a curatorial challenge. But I do think there is a very important civic function that actually dynamizes the museum that much more for the general public and involves the public, I think, in a more personal, but also intellectually stimulating way. Um, in other words, it's not a choice, uh, in my view, between Either we're presenting the objects and we let the objects speak, uh, or we are uh, presenting so much context that the museum viewer cannot really um, understand things for themselves. I think both things can be done, uh, although I think it, it's certainly um, a challenge for curators to do that. So yes, I, 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 I do, uh, I would uh, very much like to see, um, especially the larger museums with these kinds of collections, uh, follow the lead of, of some of the smaller um, uh, museums uh, who have been very good in um, showing these museums as, as places of relationship. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not places of knowledge as well. We're going to continue with Chapter 7, Creating the Public's Museum. Uh, and it's really here that you explain how Sloan's personal Museum of Curiosities became the entire nations. And so I would like you to talk a bit more about how it was in fact the creation of the British Museum and not any other public institution that first intensified a political debate about the public and their status and ultimately resulted in the creation of the first public museum, as just said, albeit the fact that some felt more welcome than others. And also, of course, what role Sloan played in this process, even posthumously. So the public museum is uh, indeed uh, a big idea. Um, uh, and the thing to say about it is, um, well, you know, one can say that the British Museum is the first national public uh, free museum in the world and an encyclopedic museum at that. So it is distinctive in that. Uh, now, I'm not particularly um, worried about the fact that 
it was it 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 is something new, um, but it certainly does not exist in a vacuum. And it really, what one means by public, what one means by museum, uh, is the question there, and that is subject to variation. Uh, and this could be, for example, some of even the commercial curiosity shops in London in the 18th century where people had to, yes, they would pay money, but there were all kinds of uh, genuine rarities on display if you, went to the, if you went to the coffee shop. So that, in a way, it was a kind of public exhibition space. Of course, if you go back to 17th century Italy, places like Florence, Bologna, and uh, Rome into the 18th century with the Capitolino Museum, uh, you certainly have already a tradition of um, museums in public buildings. So a kind of public, really almost a kind of uh, literally an architectural sense of this is a public place. Um, so again, how does one see this question of, of the public? Now, to be sure, uh, what is distinctive in the British case is a particular language in Sloane's will, a free universal access for the use of all people. Again, uh, people after him will debate that. Who does this really mean? Curators worry about that. Sloan was not. He was dead. <laughs> he was. That was going to be other people's problem. So Sloan, in his will, and transferring over to the language of the first British Museum Act, uh, this is a museum to be freely available, no charge, to uh, many different kinds of people without, uh, theoretically, any limit and for use. Um, okay. I think the thing to add to all of this, which, as your question suggests, comes later and in a broader public discussion, is what kind of uh, culture of public museum going actually emerges in any given time or place? You know, we can look at the letter of the law, we can look at public associations, civic buildings, and so on, um, and say, uh, well, yes, there are precursors and there are sort of quasi-public buildings, uh, museums and institutions and various places in Europe and so on uh, that are coming into being earlier. But what I noticed from the Sloan story was something that wasn't Sloan's language or the language of the British Museum Act. It was later in the 1750s, 60s, 70s, 80s, in the period of the American Revolution, when there is great talk about natural rights, of course, an enormous a uh, consequential debate about whether the American colonists enjoyed natural rights, universal rights that allowed them to question of uh, uh, legislation from Parliament. What's so interesting is that the language of rights um, is apparent when foreign travelers come, uh, Europeans come, um, some German visitors in 1770s, 1780s, they're using this language in relation to the museum. So I think what may be more meaningfully um, uh, distinctive about the British Museum is the actual history of museum going and the expectation um, uh, uh, in the 18th century that it then became connected to a language of rights. Uh, and I'm not sure that would be the case in other contexts. For example, my, my colleague uh, at UC Santa Barbara, Carol Paul, who has done uh, wonderful work on the origins of public art museums, broadly understood, uh, has written uh, uh, an excellent study of the Capitolino in Rome, uh, emerging in the 1730s as a kind of public museum. 
I wonder if it's also the case in 18th century Rome. It certainly a, it is the case, I, I think, in 18th century London because of these political debates of rights that this language does come to connect to the British Museum in a way that Sloan certainly did not use that kind of language. Um, and, and therefore, whether there wasn't uh, a kind of uh, character of museum going that was more robustly uh, public um, because of that debate and perhaps to do with the nature of British society, uh, London society in the 18th century, um, that, that breathed a kind of life into that ideal that was different from the other uh, previous examples of public museums. Of course, it must be noted that it's really the 19th century when British museum visitorship expands very dramatically. Um, so, you know, this is, this is uh, a story that has to be traced forward. Um, how did this all come about? Well, to answer your other question, Sloan had been very careful in his will to stipulate that if Parliament did not pay the £20,000 he requested for the collections, then the collections would be sent abroad and be kept together. I mean, he wanted the, the collections kept together. And I think very genuinely, if, if, if it were, you know, had been necessary to send them abroad to keep them together, he would have done it. So, he thought about the Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, the Academy of Sciences in Paris, the Academy in Berlin, uh, the Academy in Madrid. These were all places where he basically threatened Parliament, if you don't take these collections, they will go uh, to these other repositories. Um, but, you know, it didn't happen. Uh, it could have happened, but it didn't happen because I think he was so connected. Coming back to this idea of Sloan as um, somebody who collected people as much as he collected things. He knew a lot of Whig MPs. He had great ties to the Whig establishment. When Parliament is debating in 1753 what to do with his collections, whether to buy them, uh, he has enough friends in place so that he is not cold calling. He is a known quantity. Yes, there are still people who make fun of him still uh, at this point, um, but he is able to posthumously secure uh, the creation of a new institution to house his collections, I think in part because <laughs> in some strange way he was still around. Uh, he, his presence was still animating the debate about these, um, about these uh, uh, collections. So he had enough allies and friends in order to win that particular day. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, and even though he succeeded shortly after his death, his collections now are scattered um, over a, a, quite a few different museums um, in London um, and even, I think, elsewhere in the UK. And so this kind of leads me to my um, final question, um, because you talk about this both in the introduction and conclusion, uh, which is sort of, you know, this great Sloan collection, the collector of other collections, ultimately um, gets swallowed up by the public institution he had asked for. And, um, and so his legacy almost fell into oblivion until you uh, decided to write this book, fortunately. Um, but to me, you seem to also kind of make an institutional critique, if you will, whereby you seem to argue, and correct me if I'm wrong, that today's division into specialized fields um, means that uh, meant in the past uh, breaking up Sloan's collection um, 
which, as I said, was never really studied in its entirety. But going forward, I'm wondering whether you then pledge for less compartmentalized study of social sciences and humanities and instead a more kind of holistic world history, world, history of world art and, and so on and so forth. Ricarda, I, I, I believe strongly in less compartmentalization in pretty much every area of, of intellectual inquiry, uh, if not in, in life. I actually have come to be persuaded of the value of that, that it is um, highly uh, undervalued and that specialization, uh, which is not going anywhere and which is the foundation of my own work, is uh, perhaps... Um, overvalued as well in the sense that if it if we are so specialized whether as scholars who work in the academy or as um uh curators who work in museums then we really stop uh, our ability to see other important larger patterns um and i i do uh confess that working on sloan um uh, it took me uh, to this uh, perception. First of all, let me say that there are many curators in the London collections who have done tremendous, uh, over many years, tremendous work on, on Sloan and the collections. Um, and their, uh, uh, you know, without their work, the book would not have been possible. And it was really a pleasure for many years to, to work with botanists at the Natural History Museum. Um, a tremendous pleasure to work with uh, uh, librarians at the British Library and curators at the, at the British Museum. It was part of the joy. I mean, I did realize how rarely uh, 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 such um, specialists were uh, speaking to them to each other um, uh, about Sloan in particular, but I think it's it's more generally true. Now, of course, specialization is is a sociological uh, fact, um, but I I am uh, a believer that um, uh, you know the the Sloan story uh, is ultimately one that can't be told by a specialist. So that that became the challenge. Uh, that's why the book took fifteen years to write. Um, and, and research from from start to finish, um, and therefore, you know, it's not something that could have been done as a short term, um, uh, specialized project. Uh, but therefore, you know, but we need to know about um, the way in which somebody who goes to Jamaica in the 1680s is related to an astonishingly important legacy um, in the 1750s. You know, it's very often been the case that uh, the role of the slaves will be left out of the the roll call of of what makes Sloan a great figure. So, you know, Sloan has 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 been there in the background because, as you say, these collections were divided up. Um, the great irony of his achievement in getting that museum created was that in the 19th century, when knowledge became more specialized, the collections were divided up by department and by institution. So, in a way, he became uh, invisible, or certainly in the integrity of his collections, and that vision of how they came together became uh, uh, invisible. Um, and his form of encyclopedism is not our form. You know, if one thinks of the British Museum today, or similar institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York, or, or, or Getty, or the Art Institute of Chicago, in They've gone in the direction since the 19th century, of course, of archaeology and history of civilization. That is not what Sloan, the doctor and, and the naturalist, was was doing. So in a way, that's the ontological answer to that question. Um, 
what he tried to do um, now looks insane. And in fact, as a, as a scholar or um, as, as a curator, probably, um, if you embarked on that breadth of project, you would today probably be considered insane, um, at least sort of sociologically insane. Um, why are you why are you doing that? How can you possibly um, hope to do that? So that's kind of an, an ironic sociological fact of our time. Of course, the other answer to the question of why Sloan became not entirely invisible, but hardly talked about, I do think is because of the understandable but regrettable uh, taciturnity and silence over the issue of slavery. Um, I think slavery, race, uh, empire um, have become have become in some ways harder to talk about in UK society today. In some ways, they're much talked about. But Sloan is again. What's interesting about him is he's such a mainstream figure. Uh, you know, when I became interested in him, I became interested that he was in Jamaica. Jamaica was a fascinating place to study, and I then realized that it was a story taking me back to. Uh, London and taking me uh, taking me into the foundations of, of the British Museum. So I do hope the book uh, presents the story in a way that uh, breaks down all kinds of specialized compartments. It shouldn't just be a story for experts in the history of the African diaspora or the Caribbean or empire. Conversely, it shouldn't just be the story of museology, the history of science and medicine. These specializations we are all trained in, they're all ways of helping us make sense of the chaos of, of the heterogeneous jumble of things as they are, um, and they're very useful and effective. Uh, what I tried to do with the book was to have the benefit of those different approaches, but you're right to say and to to really affirm the idea that that kind of sociological division of uh, we should tell stories just in our particular neck of the woods, I think um, we lose something uh, that is intellectually dynamic and also civically important if we do not try sometimes to make this uh, different uh, breadth of argument and breadth of narrative. Um, so, you know, this this is what the book tries to share and give to readers of all kinds. Um, and I certainly have derived, in a way I did not expect, uh, inspiration in terms of uh, this kind of uh, breaking of the compartments, as you, as you describe it. And I hope uh, readers also... Um, get the sense that uh, while it is forbidding and one has to take all the specialization seriously and to, to do our research as carefully as possible, um, a spirit of intellectual breadth and connection may be the most valuable thing of all. Excellent. Thank you so much. These were wonderful final words, I, I think. Um, so I thank you very, very much for your valuable insight and for your time, James, and for writing this hugely fascinating book, Collecting the World, The Life and Curiosity of Hans Sloan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>